Hi, well, welcome. Uh, my name is Bland. I'm the lead pastor here. If you just happen to be tuning in, um, glad to glad to have you with us today. Um, if you're a regular, hey, we love you. Um, I love you. I miss you. Uh, I am excited about next Sunday. But before I get to that, I want to give a little caveat about today's message. So this is just a heads up to parents of smaller kids. Uh, today's message is about David and Bathsheba. It's going to be a little more PG-13. Uh, so you might want to have keep that in mind as you think about um, you know the kids being in the room. Uh, just I'm going to deal with it as carefully as I can, but there's going to be some things you might end up having to have conversations about that you don't want to. So um, yeah, so heads up on that. Also, just the Easter gathering. Uh, really want to encourage you to come out. The town has has given us a permit for Lars Anderson. The weather is looking good. Uh, we have 150 person limit. We're going to be spaced out. We're we're actually going way beyond what like is even safe just to be a, absolutely above reproach. We know the entire town's going to be kind of looking at us. There'll be some people walking by and uh, we want to, we're going to be super, super safe in this. So um, please sign up, register. I want to see you. Um, I'm excited about seeing you, especially on Easter Sunday. So uh, hope you'll hope you'll be there for that. Uh, today's a real special day for us uh, in the life of our church. We get to, and I've never actually done this, uh, we get to commission our first uh, chaplain. Uh, and I know you're thinking, well, what's a, what's a chaplain? Um, if, if you're not really familiar with the term, uh, military, hospitals, sports teams, and some other organizations uh, recognize the spiritual dimension of the people who participate or, or who are part of that organization or who are in that space. And, um, and so they have uh, chaplains who come in who, who help serve those spiritual needs for uh, folks, uh, whether in the hospital or in the military, um, or in my case, a few years ago, serving with the Red Sox. Um, and so uh, we have our first uh, chaplain that we are commissioning as a church. And um, this, uh, her name is Christine Park. And Christine and her husband, Chris, have been members of COA for a couple of years. Uh, Christine is a brilliant, uh, uh, actual brilliant scholar. She has a, a, a PhD from the BU School of Theology. Very, very sharp uh, woman. She's um, has spent the last two years. She didn't feel necessarily called into this, but began to like explore it a couple of years ago. Uh, has been serving as a fellow, a, a chaplain fellow at Mass General for the last couple of years. Uh, and so this is like a turning point in her career where she's feeling God really calling her towards this more fully. And so uh, our commissioning um, helps serves a purpose for her um, because to, to be a chaplain, a recognized chaplain, full chaplain at a hospital like, like MGH, you have to be endorsed. Uh, by a national religious organization, and then you have to be uh, uh, board certified. So what we're doing is commissioning her, and then through our endorsement, uh, our, our commissioning, the North American Mission Board, who we partner with for church planting, they also work with chaplains all over the country, and they're part of an uh, official recognition and endorsement of chaplains, uh, will endorse her so she can become board certified uh, with uh, with MGH. So we're, we're excited about it. It's kind of a big process, but um, we're excited to be a part of that. I've asked Christine to come on and just share uh, a couple of minutes sharing about her heart and her calling uh, to be a part of this. So Christine, I think you're on. Uh, good to see you. Um, why, don't you why don't you share for a few moments? Hi, everyone. My name is Christine. My husband, Chris, and I have been covenant members of COA since 2018, and we're both baptized in front of COA brothers and sisters. 
Um, as a faithful covenant member, it would be an honor to be commissioned as a hospital chaplain through COA and be endorsed by North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Since 2019, I've been working as a hospital chaplain at Mass General Hospital, currently serving as a chaplain for general medicine, neurology, and oncology units. Before I made a transition to full-time chaplaincy, I was in academia finishing up my PhD. As much as I enjoyed doing research and teaching, I personally felt disenchanted by the lifestyle of a scholar. I believed my sense of calling from God was to spend time and serve people and not isolate myself behind the library stacks. I decided to listen to God and leave my life of academia to explore other ways I can serve God's people. And then I came across hospital chaplaincy at MGH. When the pandemic broke last year, COVID-19 became a litmus test for my passion. As fearful and exhausting as it was to serve patients with COVID-19 during the peak of the pandemic, I also found a deep sense of calling and meaning in this work as a hospital chaplain. Having made it through the pandemic and witnessing my God-given spiritual gifts lifting patients in need, I decided to pursue board certification and commit my life as a hospital chaplain. Although commissioning and endorsement is a requirement for board certification, I personally see this process more than just a prerequisite. Throughout my past years as a hospital chaplain, I owe my brothers and sisters at COA for supporting me through prayers and encouragement especially those in my CG. I was able to identify and discern my calling and joy as a hospital chaplain because of your prayers. And it brings me deep gratitude to know that I can share my calling and commitment as a hospital chaplain with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Um, just to, to um highlight something she said. So I'm actually her uh, CG leader. Um, it's been a, a blast to have her and Chris in CG and, and uh, what a what a difficult time for a hospital chaplain, right? Um, and to, especially to be exploring this call. But uh, every week when we'd get on and, and we'd have our CG meeting, it was it was um, it was beautiful to see the way God was shaping you through this and to hear you, um, the way you prayed, the way you um, uh, we're, we're struggling in your own faith through this journey. And, um, and I think if God, if God calls you while you're in COVID, I got to believe that this is a real call because I could think uh, there are a lot of reasons why you'd want to pull back or go, whoo, I need a break. That's not for me. But um, it, was, it was a joy to see God calling you further into this. And, uh, but I can, I can affirm that calling. I want to give you a char brief charge to go um, as, you, as you go to be with and like Jesus before we pray for you. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, for even the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as you go and serve in the hospital, serve like Jesus every day. Uh, John 20, 21, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So go like Jesus, knowing God has sent you into the hospital on behalf of, of himself to, to love, to serve, and to demonstrate the love of God uh, for the people there. And then Acts 1, 8, uh, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So go into the hospital like Jesus with the power of the spirit, knowing he has put you there uh, to declare and display the gospel uh, for those who are in need. Um, 
I'm going to ask everyone now to, uh, you know, normally if we were commissioning Christine in a service, we would gather around her, lay hands on her and, and pray for her. Um, but we can't obviously do that. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand on your screen. Um, but, <laughs> but what we're going to do now is I am going to give you about uh, 30 seconds individually to just pray for Christine. So let's go ahead and just take a few uh, seconds to pray for her and then I'll, I'll uh, commission her in prayer. Father, we thank you for, um, for wiring up and gifting Christine the way that you have. Um, you have given her a heart to step into uh, chaplaincy, to be, um, to be there as a representative, as an agent of yours, to, to bring hope, to bring comfort, to bring care, and, uh, and, and to bring the good news to those who are hurting, Lord, those who are um, uh, maybe alone, maybe those who are afraid. Um, God, it is a it is a um, a very sacred moment in people's lives as they're uh, they they are they feel vulnerable in the hospital and I just pray, Lord, for Christine as she steps into this uh, this role fully. Um, I, I just pray you, she would sense your presence, your power with her, that she would know um, that that you are with her, and we pray that she, you would love people through her, that you would um, give her the compassion of Christ, give her the endurance of Christ, and surely there will be hard days along this journey, God, but I pray that those will be days where you just draw her uh, and, and Chris uh, really close to you uh, during that time. Give her a, um, just a, a spirit that endures um, and, and God, a, a, a love that, that doesn't fail. Um, God, we pray for her, uh, commission her in your name. We pray all this. Amen. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. All right, well, um, we're gonna dive into God's word. So you wanna go ahead and open your uh, Bible to 2 um, Samuel chapter 11. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we are um, in a series on King David. And, um, you know, so far in this series, David has been a hero, right? He's been, uh, he's been the man after God's own heart and God has walked with him uh, in, in, you know, his victories. He's walked with him in defeating Goliath. He's walked with him as he uh, struggled. Um, but today's message is different. Today's message is really, um, is not is not warm and fuzzy. It's a it's a graphic, weighty uh, image of of David's utter failure. Right? This is um, this is not David the righteous man following God, but David the evil man embracing sin. Uh, and so what we see is is this this picture, and I think this is important because the Bible um, paints a, rea- a real picture of people. Right? Uh, people are real in the Bible. They don't just you know act like the, even the heroes of Scripture were perfect. Um, and this is a is a, an example of that. As great as David's success had been on display, now his sin is on display. And I want to highlight very quickly what is sin, just to to define that for us. Sin is any thought or action that breaks God's commands. 
any thought or action that breaks God's commands. Um, it is anything we think, say, or do that is against God's will and his character. So, so sin is wrapped up in who God is. And this is why Jesus said the greatest commandment, that is the greatest thing you can do, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, then, then you, you, you can't sin. If you're doing those two things fully, then you can't sin. So all the variations of what if this is a sin or what if that's a sin? Yes, we need specifics and that's what scripture gives us. But to really see and to understand what, um, uh, what sin is about, we need to tie it in relationship uh, to God. Uh, if we're honest with ourselves today, as we read this story, you and I both know we are capable of sin. Uh, we're capable of, of uh, great sin. Uh, Jesus said that sin arises out of our hearts and comes out of our mouth and out of our, our bodies. It's, it's, it flows from inside us. And it's like, a, it's like an acorn. Tim Keller uses the analogy of an acorn has the potential to be a giant oak tree, right? Everything is needed in that acorn. And if that, if that acorn progresses un, unrestrained or un, unstopped, it will become a full tree. And that's what sin does in us. Uh, and all of us have that acorn that can grow in us. So let's pick up with Second um, Samuel, and I'll, I'll uh, read and pause a little bit along the way. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, this is huge, right? David was a successful king. Uh, he had great military victories. He had brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Um, he was, his fame, uh, his power, his kingdom was growing. His wealth was go- growing. Um, and God had, had blessed him. Um, but what David didn't detect was all of this primed him up for sin. You see, David uh, was blessed, but then he became bored. David was blessed and he became bored. He should have been out leading the army uh, to, to, to lead uh, his ar- the, the army of God to do God's will uh, on behalf of God's people. But he did the easy and comfortable thing and put himself in a position where, where he was primed up to fall. Verse two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a, wo- uh, roof, a woman bathing and the woman was very Beautiful. Now, at this point, David hasn't sinned. He's seen her, but he hasn't sinned yet. And David sent and inquired about the woman, which which tells us right there that's not a good thing, right? It, 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 he hasn't sinned yet, but but the fact that he is sending someone to find out about this woman is not a good thing. He didn't stop and think that's probably that's not one of my wives, right? He didn't stop and see that Satan was about to spring a trap on him um, that that he was not ready for. He uh, it hadn't been sprung yet, but but God even sent the servant, the servant who went and inquired came back and that servant was a gift to David and actually was, gave him one opportunity here to, to not step into this. Listen to what the, the servant says. He says, and, uh, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, isn't that someone else's daughter? Isn't that someone else's 
wife, right? He's telling David this, but not just someone else, the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was one of, of David's soldiers, right? And, and, and Uriah, uh, the wife of Uriah, you remember Uriah? Uriah was uh, the, the one of the 30 mighty men of David. Uh, Uriah, that guy that you handpicked to be in your special forces because he was loyal and courageous and he was a good man. Remember Uriah, that's his wife. Like you can almost hear, hear how he's saying this, but David blew right past it. Verse four, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him uh, a present from the king. So, So basically the idea was send him back to his home. Maybe he'll sleep with his wife. I'll send him a present as well. Verse nine, and Uriah slept at the door, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go back to his house. So here's David, the man after God's own heart, right? The, the righteous man who wouldn't kill Saul when Saul was, was uh, given into his hand. The man who had taken out Goliath was now being taken out by lust, um, and and he, tr- he tried to figure out a way uh, to hide his sin. So he said, well, I'll get Uriah you know, to come and, and I'll get him home and I'll get him to sleep with his wife quickly. And if he could sleep with his wife quickly, then, then I'll be okay because then the pregnancy won't be an issue uh, and he'll think it's his. Instead, it's ironic. It's really ironic here and sadly ironic that Uriah as a drunk man was, a, was better than David as a, a, a sober man. Uriah as a drunk man was more righteous in that he would not go back into uh, his home. He said, you know, all the soldiers, all my brothers that are fighting, we're out there fighting. I'm not going to go indulge myself and give myself uh, the, the, the pleasure and comfort of being in my home with my wife. I will stay here at the king's uh, palace uh, and then I'll go back. Um, and, and Uriah was a better man, drunk even, than David was. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. 
Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, if he says to you, why did you go so near the city? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerushabeth? Uh, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and told David and all, all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the Lord devours uh, now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to the house, and she uh, became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. There is not a more detailed and graphic picture of one person's particular incident of sin in Scripture. Like this is showing us. Um, but before we unpack it, before we unpack and, 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 and hit three observations about sin here, uh, I don't want us to miss a very important biblical idea about sin. And that is sin is first and foremost about God. Sin is first and foremost about God. Psalm 51, David isn't uh, crying out to, uh, you know, uh, Uriah or, or, you know, Bathsheba saying, oh, I have, I have really done this to you. He cries out, he says, God, uh, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, you might be thinking, well, he kind of sinned against Uriah, didn't he? He kind of sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, but, but we need to understand sin is sin because God has said it is sin, not because we say it's sin. So sin is sin fundamentally because it's against God and his created plan for the universe. So even though we see the, the horizontal dimensions of sin primarily, the primary aspect is vertical spilling over into the horizontal. You see, sin is treason against our creator. And the thing about treason against the creator is it always has impact on the other citizens, right, of the kingdom. So let's, let's look at this first idea related to that. Sin degrades others. Sin degrades others. David's decision not to go to battle led him to uh, a place where he was, um, where he actually forced his servants, like he forced his servants to go and, and take Bathsheba, right? Uh, he, forced, um, uh, he forced defiled Bathsheba um, by, by having her, making her sleep with him. And of course, he, he defiled and, and, and degraded and, and destroyed Uriah by having him murdered. One of the biggest lies about sin that you and I buy is that my sin is just about me. My sin affects only me. But when you lie, when you look at porn, when you are selfish, when you're lazy, or when you turn your job into an idol, your sin affects other people. It always affects other people. It always impacts those around us. Now, you may have grown up in, in church and heard this story and thought, well, 
um, or you may have even heard the interpretation. Well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been doing what she was doing. You know, clearly she was, you know, enticing uh, David. But but this is a really a misunderstanding of the text. It's a it's kind of reading the text through a modern like Western lens versus reading the text for what it says and reading it in its context of an ancient Jewish culture. There was no she was bathing on the roof because there was no plumbing in the house, and uh, and she was even bathing as part of her purification, which which meant that it was post the time of her month, which meant it, it was clarifying she was not pregnant. Uriah, you know, she there's no chance she was pregnant by Uriah um, because this was after her time of the month. She was clean, cleaning herself according to scripture. What she was doing was actually righteous. And, and on the rooftop, no one else would be able to see her. But the king's, uh, king's um, palace was, was the highest thing in the city. And and she and he was looking down from that, and this actually gives us a sense of the power dynamics. And there are power dynamics at work in this text. There's David who is high and lifted up, and exalted in comfort and ease, looking down on a soldier's wife who is who is uh, ritually cleansing herself, and he chooses to take advantage of this unjust power dynamic. Uh, many scholars in reading, you know, uh, really say based on the context and based on what was happening in that world and based on the way the way the dynamics worked with the king, she really couldn't say no. There was no way that she could say no. Now, I mean, I, I, I guess she could have uh, killed herself, but but the, but she had no ability. You were under the authority of a king, right? If you were a citizen, you were under his authority, and he had this. Um, freedom. It wasn't right. It wasn't good. It was unjust for him to use it this way, but he used his power that he had over her to bring her into his house. Now, I refer to it as adultery, but it's really not actually um, meet the definition of of pure adultery. Pure adultery means um, there's equal agency, and there was no equal agency in this text. This isn't two people who mutually decided to forsake their marriage covenant so that they could be together. Right? That's not the case. This is David who had all the power looking down on her and, and, and taking her. Uh, and in fact, the, the text tells us, and you look at, and, and it gives us, you know, who Bathsheba's father was, gives us who his, her, her husband was. And we, we don't read these or understand these when we just look at them in English, but Eliab was, a, was from a Canaanite family. So he was not actually Jewish. He'd converted, obviously, to Judaism. His family converted to Judaism, but he still had that name. And then Uriah, the Hittites were were Canaanites as well. They were not Jewish people. So Uriah's family had evidently converted, but he still had that name, Uriah the Hittite. Not Uriah, part of God's people. It is Uriah the Hittite, the guy who came from a pagan people. So David, they did not have the same rights as David, and David took her. And this is the kind of behavior that's become, uh, it's come to the surface in our culture. It's been behind the scenes for a long time, but it's come to the surface where the whole Me Too movement exists because people, usually almost always men uh, in power, have used their power to abuse others um, and to take advantage of them. We've seen this in, in the story of Harvey Weinstein, uh, but we've seen it, unfortunately, in church as well, right? Um, in, in some recent high-profile Christian leaders who have, um, things have come out about them. 
Uh, this is one of the reasons why we as a church are, are uh, involved in something called the Caring Well Initiative. And uh, Janie Main and, and several others uh, on staff and, and volunteers in the church are helping us to develop, um, as part of a national emphasis called Caring Well, uh, develop a plan, a comprehensive plan for caring for the abused in the midst and also dealing with issues and also providing a safe environment where, where abuse is much less likely to happen in the context of, of, of church. We want church to be um, a safe place. And so we're taking that seriously. But sin degrades, demeans, uh, and, and actually devours. It, it became clear that Uriah, uh, that David couldn't hide his sin. So then he implicated his, his uh, Bathsheba, got her involved with, with lying, right? I mean, it, she, he, he told her basically, you got to lie to Uriah uh, and get him to sleep with you. Uh, when he comes home, you got to sleep with him. Uh, and then you got to claim that baby's his. So he, he implicated her um, and she had no idea what would happen if she said no, right? She, she had no power in this situation. So she couldn't say, well, no, I'm not gonna do that. You're gonna deal with this uh, yourself. Well, he might've said, well, you know, it'd be easier for me to just have you and your, your husband killed, you know? Um, who knows? And of course he did have Uriah killed when it became clear that he could not hide it. You see, when you give in to sin, you degrade the people around you. On the one hand, you cannot help but begin to see the people around you as objects uh, to be used as a means for your end or as obstruction to you reaching your end. So you begin to see other people because at this point, sin has made you selfish. Sin has made you selfish and whatever it is, whatever sin you're pursuing, people are either helping you and you're, you're using them for that or they're obstructing you and, and you, you are uh, hating them for that. You see, when it looks at, a person looks at porn, they are destroying the person uh, on the screen. They are, they are devaluing, degrading the people on the screen. And uh, rather than seeing them as image bearers of God with dignity and value, they're seeing them as objects to be consumed. And then porn, of course, spills over into relationships, into to marriage and dating relationships. Um, and when a person is being selfish, they, they're loving themselves. They, by definition, can't love other people. When you are full of selfishness, you can't help but see other people uh, as, as either helping you or impeding you. So be honest with yourself today. How has your sin devalued, demeaned, degraded others around you? How is your sin? Well, you're like, well, you know what? My sin doesn't really affect. Yes, it does. Because you see, one of the things about sin we think that we get by is because it doesn't have a direct impediment or impact on someone else that we can see, we think that it doesn't impact them. But do you know when you're walking in sin, you can't be loving? You can't love others like Jesus. You can't serve others like Jesus. You can't be generous like Jesus. You can't be selfless like Jesus when you are walking in sin. So it affects other people. So the question, if we're really honest with ourselves, is how how is my sin doing that? How am I impacting other people with my sin? So how did David end up in this place? And this is the second uh, important dimension of sin here is that sin deceives us. I believe if you had come to David the, the, the day before he looked and saw Bathsheba and you had said, hey, David, um, dude, you're going you're gonna to spot a naked woman and you are going to want to have her. And so you're going uh, to go uh, 
take her. Uh, she's married, but you're going to take her. You're going to forsake your your covenant vows to your to your wives, and you're gonna you're gonna have sex with her, use her, get her pregnant. Then you're gonna uh, try to hide it and have her husband uh, come back from the front, and then you're gonna end up having him killed. One of your most loyal soldiers, your thirty mighty men. You're gonna you're gonna have him taken out, uh, and and you're gonna be a murderer. Now, if you had told David that the day before, I bet he would have fought you. I bet he would have been like, "What you, you do not say that kind of stuff about me. I am not that kind of person. But David ended up there, didn't he? He ended up there because sin deceived him. And every step of the way uh, where David had an escape, he chose not to because sin was deceiving him into believing that what was on the other side of it was better than what God had for him. And that's what sin really is. Sin is sin is saying whatever is being promised, whatever lie is being fed to me at this moment is better than what God has for me. And it all started with his failure to be doing what he was supposed to be doing. The Bible may not have compelled David. There's some questions about whether he was truly actually sinning by staying at home. Um, I think he was sinning because I think based on some scriptures and some commands, he had the right to stay home. He had the right to stay home, but his staying home should have been for the purpose of honoring God in some way. But instead, it was uh, a means of being self-indulgent. Uh, Jen Wilkins said it this way. She said, the way of Christ is self-denial and service. And what we are seeing here in David's choice of staying in Jerusalem is the inverse of that. It is self-indulgence and idleness. So David didn't stay home from battle so he could uh, he could say, well, you know, I really want to focus on these things. I want to memorize scripture. I want to help, uh, help you know, build some stuff for priests. I want to, you know, make sure uh, things are taken care of in the kingdom and people are served well and people are worshiping Jesus well. No, he stayed home so he could chill out. And, and that became a space for him to sin. And I want to say this, one of the best ways to avoid temptation is to make sure you are busy with the work of God. Now, there's a space for rest. There's an important space for rest. Rest is commanded, but rest is not the same thing as giving into self-indulgent idleness or comfort. There's a difference there right? So rest is important. But one of the ways that you avoid that self-indulgent idleness is to make sure you're, you're busy uh, about God's plan and God's purpose in your life. So sin came to deceive him. And the, the, the parallel here of what happens and the way it's described, David saw her, he wanted her, he took her, is a parallel with Adam and Eve in the garden. Language is very similar, right? At, uh, Eve saw the fruit of the tree, She wanted the fruit of the tree and she took the fruit of the tree, right? So it's this seeing, seeing is not sin, but once you go into seeing and begin to play that over in your mind going, that's not just beautiful fruit. Oh, that's beautiful fruit, but that's fruit that I want. I want for me. I want whatever that fruit's gonna provide me and then taking the fruit. You see, David saw Bathsheba and he could have turned away. He could have. He could have said, you know what? That's not my wife. I'm going to turn and I'm going to leave. I'm going to go downstairs. I need to go talk to my friend Bob, you know, or whatever. Like, go do something. He could have done anything. But instead, he, he chose, to, uh, chose to, to gawk at her. There's no doubt the way that it, it, it describes him looking at her. He wasn't like, oh, hey, go find out about her. He stood there for a while. He stood there for a while looking, taking her in, and he began to play over in his mind, and it became from observation to desire. 
And, and just like James uh, 1 talks about, each of one of us is uh, sins when we're led away and enticed by our own sin. And when sin is conceived, it gives birth to death, right? Um, and, and so there's this process that he was in and it began with being deceived. The lie was that David would be satisfied. There was a lie that said, this woman can satisfy my deepest longings, my, my deepest joys. He forgot that he was married, forgot that she was married. He forgot that he was abusing his power and position. He was deceived by Satan and did not understand he was uh, stepping into death. You see, Satan, Satan entices us. God's not the giver of life. You gotta go get your life. God's not the giver of joy. You gotta go get that joy. God's not the giver of satisfaction. You gotta go get your satisfaction. And he is throwing these enticements out all the time with us. And the problem is sometimes they're good things. So sex is a good thing. It's a gift of God. It has parameters for it uh, in scripture that are for safety, right? For safety and flourishing, for joy. But when, sin, when, when sex goes outside of those parameters, it becomes sin. And so the, the temptation there is that sex outside of God's parameters is somehow going to be my ultimate satisfaction. It's going to give me ultimate life and joy and peace. And at that point, the only thing is the sin. And we begin to say to ourselves, that's life, that's joy, that's fulfillment. That's what I really need. So David was deceived by sin with Bathsheba, added murder to it. Think about how dark this was. How, how dark does a person's heart have to be to go from gawking at a woman, looking at her, to murdering her husband? Like it's a it's a it's a, an incredibly dark track. Um, and one that David, none of us would have read up to this story and thought, hey, you know what I think is going to happen next? I think David's going to be a lying, murdering psychopath. No, he, 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 he uh, we would have thought, man, he's going he's gonna to be the greatest king. And he was. But this was a moment of truth that David is not the king God had promised. You see, God had promised a perfect king who would rule over his people forever in righteousness and justice. And David is failing that. We were waiting for a new and better David, and that is King Jesus. But sin is progressive in our lives. Uh, a pastor once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So it deceives us. Finally here, and just briefly, it defiles us. It defiles us before God. The very last thing, verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, only a few people knew about this, right? Only a few people knew that David had sent for Bathsheba. He'd slept with her. Only uh, even fewer knew that he had had Uriah killed, right? Literally, just a tiny handful, maybe Joab and the, the uh, you know anybody who had read the message or a servant who was with David when he talked to, uh, wrote the message. You know, just maybe a handful of people knew that. And, and, and people thought, oh, well, David, isn't David a righteous man? He's gonna take Bathsheba into his house, you know, and care for the, the wife of his, uh, you know, one of his mighty men. But God saw it. God sees all of our sin. You see, God, David was not ruling rightly and justly over his kingdom but God rules rightly and justly over his creation and he sees it all. 
It is all before him, including the depths of our heart, every action, intention, deed, and thought. All sin is against God and it defiles us. John Piper describes sin this way. He says, it is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, that is sin. And if we're honest with ourselves today, our own consciences, all of us stand before God defiled. We know, we know that we know we cannot live up to God's commands perfectly. We can't. No one has looked at God's word and walked away thinking, I got that. Yep. Whole thing right here. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I just, that by itself, I'm killing it. No, no one. We are all defiled before God and sin uh, condemns us. You see, God God saw saw David and he sent the uh, prophet Nathan to him in the next chapter. Nathan doesn't confront David directly because when you're in sin, uh, sometimes being confronted, especially when you're all, we've already murdered someone, um, it's a, it's a, you know, dangerous thing to confront someone who has all the power and who is full of sin. So Nathan confronts him with a story and he tells him under the inspiration of God, he tells him a story. He says, there were two men in a town. One man had, had, uh, tons and tons of sheep and was very rich and very wealthy. Another man, a uh, poor man had one sheep, but he loved that sheep and he took care of that sheep. And that sheep was known by him. It was part of his family. Um, And the rich man had a huge party and he was inviting a bunch of people over. But rather than take one of his own sheep and use it uh, to serve his guests, he went and took that one man's sheep and used it. And David was livid. David was like, who is this? Who is this guy? I'm going to make him pay. Who is this man? And in one of the most memorable lines in all of David's life, Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. You see, You and I are the man. As much as we want to judge injustice in other people, we have been unjust towards God. As much as we want to judge uh, pride and greed and anger and lust and, and all of that in other people, we have been full of those things ourselves. We are the man. This is one of the most uncomfortable truths, but important truths in the world. But this is also where the gospel meets us. You see, the gospel is good news because it meets us in a bad place. The gospel is good news because we are in a bad place. We are defiled before God. We don't have clean hands and a pure heart. We don't deserve to be before God. We don't deserve to be uh, in his kingdom. We don't deserve to know God. We deserve to experience God's wrath and judgment for our rebellion, for our foolishness, for our our, uh, demeaning and diminishing his glory and his goodness. David repented and threw himself completely on God's mercy, saying, only you, God, can atone for my sin. And this is where the gospel is for us. You see, we look to Jesus, who was defiled on the cross for our sin. 
We're gonna talk about that this Friday at the Good Friday service, understanding what Jesus really did by taking all of our sin on himself on the cross. But that's the good news for us today. But the good news only meets you if you're in a bad place. If you're okay, if you think you're okay, if you think you're doing great, you don't need this, then the good news is not for you. And I think this message for us today is, is to challenge some of us who have become complacent and comfortable with our sin. We're not fighting it. We're not putting it to death. We're not even being honest about it in repentance before God. We're dressing it up. We're excusing it. We're saying, well, that's just going to be the thing I'm going to deal with. That's just my thorn in the flesh, right? That I'll just deal with the rest of my life. But that's not the gospel. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning away, putting away sin, fixing our eyes on Jesus, believing that he has paid the price for our sin, and then walking in that grace, moving forward in obedience. That's what he's calling us to today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that um, you did not leave us defiled, standing before the Father. You did not leave us under the weight of our sin. You, you took it all on yourself. You became the man so that we could become sons and daughters of the Father. We thank you for that today. I pray that we would not play with sin, that you would convict us even now, that we would be honest and transparent before you, confessing, repenting, once again, coming before your throne of grace, knowing you do not uh, give grace reluctantly, but joyfully, willingly, extravagantly to those who will come. We need it today, Father. In your name we pray, amen.